Hello and welcome to American Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson. Our guest for this episode is mindset coach Colin Henderson. Colin tells us how his own history with anxiety, panic attacks, and stuttering led to a career in public speaking and mental skills coaching. This episode is stacked with stories and advice from how parents can be better parents to their student athletes to why businesses should be investing in the mental health of their employees. Full disclosure, Beyond American Podcast, I produce videos for Colin. We are also fellow alums of Washington State University, where Colin was a two-sport athlete playing football and baseball. Colin shares some of the skills he teaches to major companies across the United States and illustrates the context of how relevant these teachings are to major athletic programs in Fortune 500 companies. We talk about his experiences at Washington State University as a student athlete and how Coach Mike Price impacted his life. We talk about Phil Jackson, the Yankees, and how they're implementing mind coaches change the landscape of professional sports. This episode is part one of two. Part two delves into how Colin coaches businesses and athletic programs. Part one explores Colin's own personal trajectory and mindset. Thank you for joining us on this episode of American Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and find us on social media. And now I present my conversation with Colin Henderson. All right, I'm here with Colin Henderson, peak performance coach. Wait, mindset. That's fine. That's cool. Wait, wait, what's the other term? I'm, I'm a man of many names. I have a lot of titles. So I go by mental skills coach, mental conditioning coach, peak performance coach, mindset coach. Basically, any term you want to say to get better, thinking about using your mind as your most powerful tool. So think of me as a strength coach, but for your mindset. So it's like going to the gym, but I'm not lifting weights with my, yeah. with my arms. So some phrases I say to link what I do is, we're not just going to the gym, we're going to the mind gym. You can't just exercise, you need to exercise. Exercise? Yeah. Okay. See, you're working on yourself, working on the inner game. Because I'm sure, Shane, you've probably heard multiple times in your life, people say, we have to be more mentally tough. Mm. And you probably say, well, thank you for that amazing insight, but how do I do that? So just like you would go to the gym and you knew nothing about weights or fitness, you have a treadmill, you have a squat rack, you have all these dumbbells, and it's like, what do I even do with these? I don't know what to do. So you have a coach that's trained on how to lift, how to do cardio, and can teach you that stuff. Well, there are certain mental skills that you can learn that there's just laws of buoyancy, laws of gravity, there's laws of success, laws of how we think, and that's what I do. I teach you fundamental laws about how to use things like self-talk, how to use uh, tools to be more self-aware, um, powerful tools that you can train like gratitude, power of service, how to you know, set goals but focus on the process, how to visualize. So these are tools that a lot of athletes use at the highest levels. And it's my mission with my new company, Master Mindset, is to transform lives and normalize mental skills training. Make it normal. Like, why should Russell Wilson have a personal mindset coach, but Shane, you have a family and you have a job that they're stressed. Why should you not get access to these same skills? Totally. So who, what kind of clients do you have right now? My audience, the customers that hire me to work with them. So I've found a niche. If you're in business or in sales, the stuff I teach is perfect because especially salespeople, 
you have goals each quarter, each month. There's pressure you're selling against other people. There's a lot of failure. So learning these skills is huge. Athletes, this is perfect. I mean, you're seeing this movement where pro baseball, uh, golf, tennis, basketball, most uh, athletes at the highest level, they have a specialist like myself that's teaching them these like concepts and also schools. Thinking about stress today, you know, one out of three teens has anxiety. And with Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, I mean, there's just so much pressure that we have now or we're aware of more things that we didn't have access to. Think about it. In the 1970s, there were three channels on, on television. There were two major papers across the country. Now we have access to so much information and you just look at stress today. Shane, did you know that uh, five out of six deaths in the U.S. are linked to stress? 75% of doctor visits are linked or, or due to like stress. So what, what I do is I try to tell people, let's be proactive with your mindset, not reactive. You know, let's have some stuff, some, some basic things like journaling or mindfulness or, you know, just being self-aware that 80% of human thoughts are negative. Wow like untrained mind, four out of five thoughts. Your brain is created to survive, not thrive. So it's just being, being aware of, of these things, you know? So you're a, you're a mental coach. Yeah. You work with clients who need help conditioning their thought process. Um, how did you get into this? Like, where did that start? It started because as a college athlete at Washington State, go Cougs. Go Cougs. We're both Cougs. Um, I played two sports. Um, I had success. I kind of on paper, I started in two sports, um, but I was stressed all the time, like hot mess, but no one knew about it. And as an athlete, you're taught to be tough. As a male athlete, you don't ask for help. So I just remember um, going into my junior season playing for the Cougs. Shout out to, to Coach Price, one of my greatest leaders of all time. Mm -hmm. Love that guy. Yeah. Um, I had a good freshman year. I played as, as a true freshman, started week five, um, played a lot, and I felt a lot of pressure going into that, that next season. I didn't have a good sophomore season. So that offseason, going into my junior season, I told myself, I'm going to have the best offseason of my life. Like, no one's going to outwork me. I, this is my, my time to shine. I'm going to be a junior. I only have two years left. So I crushed the weight room, was just lifting a ton of weights, was getting stronger. I was, as a receiver, I was catching more passes. I was having the quarterbacks throw me, just getting extra drills, working on catching the football, working on routes. Had a great spring, did really well that spring. That August during fall camp, starting, had a great fall camp. And I remember two hours prior to our first game that season against Idaho at home, it was a Thursday. It was on national television. I had this panic attack. I had a panic attack because I was worried about what if I fail? Everyone's watching. And I recognize kind of years later that I'm in this state now, you know, we can train three things as performers, our body, our craft, and our mind. So that whole off season and summer, I trained my strength physically. I trained my uh, craft skills, catching the football, getting open. I didn't train my mind. I had no mental training of being present in the moment, of not worrying about things that, I have no, I have no, you know, um, that I, I can't handle. I just 
like the crowd and television and what people think. And if I fail, I just, I wasn't present in the moment. So that memory is, um, remember I have like, I didn't have any tools. I didn't have any coaching on how to deal with that. And then, um, in business and in, in sales. So my past life, I would sell to, to hospitals, to that, that type of, of world. Um, and I'd have like good years, good months, but it'd be kind of up and down. And I think year six or year seven, they changed how we were getting paid. We were getting paid by verbal tests over the phone. Long story short, we got in trouble doing some stuff we shouldn't have been doing. And the U.S. government got involved. Like, you can't pay your salespeople on sales. It has to be other metrics. But, um, and to add another layer, Shane, um, in sixth grade, when I switched schools, I developed a slight stutter. And I still deal with that to this day. I messed up on a word in front of everybody. And I got really embarrassed. And this, that fear of stuttering evolved. So going back to this work environment where I have to give verbal test over the phone where my mortgage payment is relying on how well I answer verbal questions of scientific, highly complicated questions. I had, I was like a nervous wreck and I was miserable. So I knew I needed help. I didn't know what to do, but thank goodness, Shane, I had a mentor that gave me a book called Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Shermin. Because up to that point, um, like a lot of us, I was crushing Netflix. I was uh, watching every sporting event on television, Sports Center. I was watching movies, and my escape, Shane, was watching movies. I'd go to the movie theater and be in a different world for two hours and just escape reality. Then, But I had this book because I, w- I wouldn't invest in myself. I wasn't going to the mind gym. I wasn't learning new things to sharpen my mindset. And the biggest lesson I took from that book that opened my eyes was the author states that we all have this internal judge, this internal critic. The human brain is created to survive, not thrive. It's created to survey the environment, look for threats and danger to keep us safe. Um, But we're not being chased anymore, shamed by lions and tigers. It's like, how do I look? It's called FOPO, fear of other people's opinions, fear of other people's opinions, FOPO. So I had that like pleaser mindset, have to be perfect, gave myself no margin for error. But these thoughts, they're not my real self. It's our, what we call ants, automatic negative thoughts. They're going to they're gonna come. And just recognizing that, you have a chance. Because your behaviors, actions are not based off the truth. They're based off of your perception of the truth. And my perception is, is I'm not either good enough or people are going to judge me. And But the reality is, is no one's thinking about you. They're worried about them themselves. That's kind of like a freeing thing that I, I learned. So I got this book and I learned some new stuff and I was like, I got to leave this company. How many of us stay in the same position, same role, same thing? It's comfortable. They're afraid of change. That's what I was. I got, so I had, I had atrophy in my brain because I just kept doing the same thing. I wasn't trying new things. I wasn't growing, you know? So I, luckily enough, I, I got hired at a new spot. So when I got hired during um, training, I got connected with this amazing sales trainer. His name is Frankie Pretzel. He was like the number one rep, like seven out of eight years. And I was in a window where he was training people for like six months. And I'm a person of faith. And I think God gifted me this book. And then he gifted me a new opportunity, a new company. And he gifted me a mentor at the time I needed it. And he taught me this amazing concept. He says, Colin, it's not sales strategy. It's sales psychology. 
selling and success is a mental game. There's all these theories on like how to sell, but like selling is a mental game. And he says, I'm going to give you a list of like 30 books to read. These are books that now I have coined. Do you, do you like Star Wars? Yeah. I've coined, these books are the Jedi Scrolls. Oh. He gave me the Jedi Scrolls. Oh. Um, so I took this book list. Now that I had this like, positive experience, like reading one book that helped me, what if I read 30 books in like five months? So I did. Um, and I, I, set, I set records that year. Um, I was happy. I was sleeping better. Um, I was a better father, husband. I was, I finally like, okay, now I have a roadmap. I, I got some coaching, I got some tangible tools. Um, so I did counseling for several meetings during my funk and it was, it was helpful. But a lot of the, our time with my counselor was like looking at the past. What this gave me was a roadmap to, to, to move forward and being an athlete, like, Hey, just draw on the whiteboard. What I need to do. Give me an offensive game plan. Most of us are, are playing defense with our life. Frankie gave me some concepts to play offense. So I saw transformation and I had, a, you know, the t- those two years, again, top rep in the country, top rookie, set sales records. I said, other people need this information. Other people need this information. And I got invited to speak at, at, at a school. And after I got done speaking, my whole th- talk was about the power of thought. These three words, thoughts become things. What you focus on, you will find. Energy flows where focus goes. Your brain's a magnet. Just being aware of what you say to yourself, what you speak out loud. And I got a phone call from the, the basketball coach at this high school. And he says, I want you to, to look up this name. Look up the name Trevor Moad. He is a mindset coach with Alabama, Florida State. He's Russell Wilson's personal mindset coach. I was like, what? So I looked him up. And I saw the, all the stuff he was doing, the concepts he, that, that he was sharing about. And uh, I was like, dude, I would love to do that. So from that moment, I think three years, four years after that, I kind of had, I started blogging about this stuff. And I wrote some books. And now I do this full time. So it's been amazing. That was a long answer to your question. Yeah. Congratulations. I mean, full time yeah. with it. Yeah. So to make it clear, were you toying with speaking before this? Were you kind of like, I'm going to you know, be a speaker or what, what was the, the journey for you? Um, well, like I said, I, I used to stutter. I honestly, to God every day, I still avoid certain words in certain times. Um, I, I still sometimes think about it, but I'm a living embodiment example. If I can change my mind, my mindset and change myself, talk and change habits, you can learn anything. Um, but it took me several st- steps. It took several years to get to this point where I was in, in Vegas yesterday. I spoke at this national sales meeting in front of 400 people for an hour and a half wow. training them. It was phenomenal. Uh, huma- big, it was big production, like screens everywhere. It was like a concert. And if you would have told me like seven years ago, you'd be doing that. I'd be like, you're crazy. I don't, I can't do that. Um, so there's a few things. So first of all, I think if there's every, anything you want, um, but you, you don't, you don't do it because out of fear. So fear is really is the biggest roadblock for a lot of people. Fear of failure, fear of what, what other people think. Um, but if you can just train your mindset just to, to lean into that fear and it's oftentimes not real, there's real fear and then there's fake fear. There's real pressure and then there's fake pressure, but fear is a physical response to a mental threat. 
oftentimes hasn't happened yet. So what I did is I had to humble myself. I had to ask for help, and most men don't want to ask for help. So I enrolled in, into, into speech therapy when I was 27 years old for four months. I rolled in, and the first thing they had me do is they gave me this, like, newspaper, and they had me read this newspaper, and I was so nervous because, again, I'll say that one more time. Let's just unpack this. Fear is a physical response to a mental threat. Think about it. Knees weak, arms are heavy, vomit on a sweater, already mom spaghetti. Like you're, you have an internal change. Your heart rate elevates and you, your internal state is out of whack. So you're not present. You're worried about the future. Anxiety lives in the future. Shame lives in, in, the, in the past. Peak performance lives in the here and now, in the present moment. So I was reading this newspaper like she's probably thinking I'm an idiot. I'm 27. I can't read out loud. But I, I didn't practice. So you get atrophy what you don't practice. So I would always avoid speaking in public. I would avoid reading stuff out loud. It's hard to be good at what you don't practice. So, But just showing up, I think a lot of people are afraid um, to do something because they're, they're afraid to get started. You know, and they're afraid to look silly and to not be good at something at first. But you have to, but you have to start. So getting started for you is, was that speech therapy? Speech therapy. And then I did that for like three or four months. And uh, that, that gave me like, just the confidence to – so I was working at Washington State. Um, my role was to get the, the athletes who were uh, alumni back involved to, to give money to – we had events and different things that we did. Um, but that was probably like my – in terms of like fluency, like my worst f- fluency um, as, as an adult. High school was pretty bad, but it, I would have like – like a baseball hitter, it would be like streaks and slumps. Like I just couldn't control it. I'd have like – Seasons of like fluency and seasons of like, I can't answer the phone right now. Okay. I, I had seasons where driving to get food and you order food through the, like the like, drive through, like sometimes that was hard for me to even put together words. Wow. Um, just to give you a few examples. Um, but doing therapy was good. I'd, you, I'd had a coach, I'd like a, a speech coach that would kind of walk me through breathing exercises and had to like, what I recognize is when I would speak, it was all breath. I would shut off my breath. And by showing you your breath off, it's hard to put together sounds. So just practicing, uh, Colin Henderson, so call, see how my breath stopped? Mm-hmm. Just breathing. I've never explained this like this before, so this okay. is kind of fun to like examine. So after I did that, um, then I joined a club called Toastmasters. Have you heard of Toastmasters before? I have. Yeah, yeah so it's a, a club really around the world where you – meet once a week with other people who are trying to get better at public speaking. So I took the skills I learned in, into that, those sessions with that, working on my speech and just working on one-on-one, you know, talking and getting some of these like um, uh, practices of how to calm yourself down, how to use your breath and how to just practice speaking. And then now I got to take it live. And so I did it for that for like three years. Okay. So I would show up and practice being in front of a group of like 10 to, to 12 people. Um, and then in like sales, so I would I took that into my sales career. But again, ups and downs, atrophy, I wasn't actively speaking in public in large groups. But I remember it was like 2013 and uh, at church, I had a, a good buddy who was like, man, I'd love for you to, to do a little message at the start of church. I'm like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Not a chance. No way. I remember just feeling like I had an opportunity to really challenge myself. It's in front of like 300, 400 people. I called him back the next like two months. I was like, I'm going to do it. I just made a decision. Like I need to get over it and just 
so that was like one of the first steps to practice being in front of larger groups. And then when I started blogging, you know, starting to get vulnerable, sharing with people the things I've learned and how to master your mindset and the, the, the tools that have changed my life, you know, people read this stuff and like, can you talk to my classroom? I have a sales meeting. What you talked about, about courage is really powerful. Can you share what you talked about in your blog post in front of my team? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I kind of did that a few times. Like I started calling my friends. Like, I have a message about, you know, these keys to win the inner game. I, I think your team could really benefit. I remember what I felt like. I had this, this um, passion to just share the message and just to help people. I didn't care if I got paid or not. And just that activity, um, I learned that, if you do, if you do what you fear the most, there's nothing you you can't do. Like just that, you do what you you fear the most, and you do it. It's like, man, now I have this power. I think we all have this concept of like we want something, but we don't do it because of fear, and that's life's golden ticket. I think to to create your your like power. Can we back up to um, you grew up in Puyallup, Washington? Puyallup. Talk to me about PHS. your chest. Talk to me about your childhood growing up in Puyallup and what led you to Washington State University. Okay, well, my uh, dad, Jerry Henderson, from Puyallup, he played quarterback at Washington State in the late 60s. He graduated as the Cougar career passing leader. Um, So growing up um, as a kid in high school, uh, we always cheered for Washington State. When I went to the Apple Cup in in 97 when the Cougs beat the Huskies to go to the Rose Bowl, I was— you know, I had offers pretty much, I had a lot of offers across the country. The Huskies were offering me in baseball. So I went to to that game paid by the Huskies, but I was wearing Cougar stuff under my jacket, you know. Um, but uh, just, yeah, growing up being a Coug, you know, my, my dad and mom met at Washington State. I had a brother, Patrick, who was at Washington State playing for the Cougs. So um, for me, it was it was easy. And they allowed me to play baseball and football. Where some of the school, most of the schools said you have to pick one or the other, so they allowed me to play both. Did you have a favorite sport coming out of high school? I love basketball is my favorite now, but probably football, just because um, it's a sport of like one on one. You know, as a receiver, I have to get open, but it's the ultimate like team sport. I can't catch the football unless there's somebody throwing me the ball. There's the lineman blocking, and then on defense, we have to stop people. Um, it's fast. Uh, there's there's like contact. Um, I think to, to as a fan, watching football is like my favorite sport to watch. So that probably was, and even to this day, in terms of just watching, I like watching football, but basketball, now that I'm a little older, it's interesting. You can't put on the helmet anymore once you're done playing. So, but um, yeah, sports has been huge. I grew up, was, was a good athlete as a kid. My, my dad played softball. Uh, he actually played racquetball. My dad was a on the pro racquetball tour in the 80s, 70s and 80s, so I grew up going to his his uh, his, his matches and stuff. So we, I always had a ball in, in my hand. This is an interesting question, kind of a side question, but were you there for the transition of like the old varsity gym at Washington State into the, the, the new facility? Yeah, so when I went on my trip, my official visit to WSU, they did not show me the locker room because there wasn't a locker room because Bowler was getting completely redone. Okay. But they had the, the new weight room completed. Okay. Um, so the, the addition, the Bowler addition. So our first season in the locker room was in the, like, P.E.B. Smith. The, it was pretty ghetto. Like the basement? Yeah, it was yeah. very ghetto. When I first came for, for two days of my freshman year, I'm like, 
this is interesting. I never even saw. I thought like a, a Pac-10 locker room would be a lot nicer than this, but I learned that they're building a new one across the street, right across the way. Um, but like I said, I mentioned Coach Price earlier, one of the best leaders I've ever experienced. I mean, just loved his his people. I, there's two memories I remember, but but MP, we call him MP, Coach Price. Um, after every loss, he'd always say, guys, it, it was my fault. I didn't get us ready to play. And then one of my favorite stories that I teach various coaches, leaders, um, is um, my sophomore season, I think it was against Cal, I was back catching a long punt, and I fumbled the ball, and I lost the ball, and Cal recovered, and I run to the sideline with my head down. I cost us a chance to get the ball to move the ball down the field, and I felt embarrassed. And the first person to greet me on the sideline was Coach, Coach Price. He put his arm around me. He's like, Colin, I got your back. You, you, I got your back. You, you're our guy back there. Like, I love you. I got your back. Like, just some form of fashion. He said that just affirming statements that he, he, he's got my back. And how many coaches coach out of, out of fear? And uh, so that just gave me confidence. I did, never fumbled a punt ever again in my career. This was my sophomore year, okay? When I fumbled the punt return, I heard our team. In 98, the Cougs won three games. In 99, we won three games. In 2000, we only won four games so his job was on the line and I think he humbled himself and just gave me love in that moment and most coaches you see most leaders they they're ego driven they're about them but to have the empathy to think about how I felt I, I was embarrassed that I'm like I was probably harder on myself I didn't need a coach to to make fun of me and say what's wrong with you I just that hug and that was a moment that changed my, my life actually <laughs> just in that moment of like hardship you know MP and then he left. So I remember when he left to go to Alabama, we had just beaten UCLA. We clinched the Pac-10 championship. We're going to the Rose Bowl. And like three weeks prior to going down to LA to, to train for the Rose Bowl, we were in the camp room in Bowler Gym. That's where we meet. A big room. All the players. We had this players-only meeting. And we didn't know what was happening. And we saw Coach Price walk in. There's like the electorate in, in front of this huge room. And he's just physically shook. Like you can physically see that something had happened. And he pulls out a piece of paper. And he informs us that he's leaving Washington State University to coach at Alabama. And he could hardly talk. He was so emotional talking about, how much he loved us and how hard it was, but for his himself, his career, his family, but the, his coaching staff can make a lot more more money mo- make with this move. Um, that was a, a touching moment seeing a, a grown man like that be that vulnerable and that emotional. The courage it took to address everybody that he was leaving, um, and then going to Alabama and all the stuff that happened didn't work out, and talking to him and. Um, just the type of human being he is and the type of mentor. My first book, Coach Price wrote the foreword for my for my, my first my first book, Project Rise. I remember talking to him about it. I was like, MP, you know, the the impact you had on me in my life, just, you know, the four years I was with you, um, how much fun we had. You know, when we'd host players in from high school on their visits, we'd go to his house, we'd have steaks. Um, at practice, he would, he would play music. Um, during, like, two-a-days, we would have this big tarp, spray water, we'd slide on it. He'd have different challenges. We'd play basketball. We'd play softball. We'd do all these different – it was, like, fun. 
And uh, so talking about somebody that sh- that sh- shaped me, I mean, he was one of the most core guys that I can I can think of. MP's a legend. And it was pretty cool. I got to be there, um, I think, two or three years ago. My quarterback, Jason Gesser, and my coach, Mike Price, got inducted to the Hall of Fame. I think, I think the same year. So to, to see both those guys who I had spent a lot of time with in my career in Pullman, it was awesome to see. Have you had any relations with uh, Ryan Leaf at all? Yeah, so Matt Kegel, Ryan Leaf's cousin, was my roommate as a freshman. Uh, and we were, Matt Kegel and I are, are completely the, op- the opposite. Matt Kegel is from Haver, Montana, uh, a straight cowboy. I would say, you know, he's kind of, he's very funny. He's very out there. And I'm kind of more, re- I got reserved a little bit, but more like just proper. But he's this funky cowboy from Montana. And uh, he's 6'5", probably one of the best athletes I've ever seen. In the summers, we do these like running drills, just, you know, run to midfield and back. Full. He would win all these. Like he can run and he's a good basketball player. But I remember every single day he would play country music over and over again being, uh, you think Piaw Boy, I guess it's kind of, is that country? It's not country, but I, I'm into hip hop and rap and um yeah, I just would never, I mean, having to share a tiny dorm room. So that was an experience. But, you know, I got to meet Ryan Leaf. His cousin's Ryan Leaf through being close with Matt, you know, for several years. Um, and to see what, 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 what Ryan has, has gone through in his life and hearing the stories that, that he's been through, um, knowing the, the, the family a little bit. Um, and Ryan would be the first to tell you that, you know, I was a jerk. I, w- I was selfish. But, you know, playing in, in the NFL and having the pressure, you can take Ryan Leaf or you can take – Peyton Manning, that was the debate in the 98 draft. Like there was this debate that was going on. Who should you take? Um, so the pressure of that. And then I think what happened was, is uh, I remember, I think Ryan showed me, he's like, Colin, feel my, uh, my wrist right here. His wrist, I think it was like week three or week four, his rookie season really messed up his, his wrist. So to cope, he would take pills to deal with the, the pain. And at that level, like the access to that the type of, of medicine is just is available, and it's almost the norm. Like you have to play, you have to play and perform, and the pressure. So I just think that environment wasn't the best for him. Um, obviously, with Coach Price, was in his first wedding, like it was like his best friend and his coach. And when you're you're at that level as a pro, you don't have that type of environment to where you have those people around you. But uh, I think what I love about Ryan is. Um, I think in, in prison, when he was going through his stuff, um, he learned that what healed him was serving others. Helping, helping people, like people that were in jail that, that didn't read, he helped them read. That was like the first step to like really transform his heart, his spirit, and then to see how, he, how vulnerable he's been. I think in America, our society, like, we will give people a few chances if you just own your mistakes, if you humble yourself, you're vulnerable, and you say, this is where I screwed up. I learned this. A lot of people, their ego gets in the way where they try to hide and they, they lie about what they did. Like, no one's perfect. Like, you've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. If you can own your mistakes, I think Ryan, it's taken him several failures, but I think where he's grown the most is he's taken complete ownership. And his new life mission is to help people that have suffered the way he did, who struggle with, you know, alcohol, drugs, and just telling telling his 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 story. You know, it's been great. And for ESPN, he's crushing it at ESPN. He's knowledgeable about football, 
So it's been fun to see him find this kind of new, this new passion, this, this new, this new lane. Looking at Ryan Leaf's trajectory, you know, in light of the idea of a mindset coach and thinking about these young players in junior high, high school, like what are your thoughts on prep athletes? What are your thoughts on parents of prep athletes? If you could speak to a family right now where there's some kids, you know, playing sports, what would you tell those kids? What would you, what would you tell those parents? I would first start with the parents. As you look at the research, 70% of youth athletes stop playing by the age of 13. There's uh, some research I read recently um, that 31% of kids wish that their parents were not at their games. Wow. And it starts with the parents. Hmm. So as I was coaching you know, kids on the mental game, I'd work, do workshops, I'd do teachings in like small groups and one-on-one. The, one of the first lessons we talk about is about fear and courage. Because really, why are we here? I mean, let's just be open with it. You know, fear is normal, nerves are normal. But when you make a mistake, when you make an error or strike out or drop a pass or mess up in tennis or basketball, like what, what are you worried about? Because when you're five, six, seven, eight years old, you don't care. You're on to that, then the next play really fast. So when you feel that shame, like what's, what's the source of that fear? And guess what answer I kept hearing, like hearing back, the number one answer I hear back over and over again was? Your parents? Mom and dad. Yeah. The car ride home. Having to explain myself after the game. Having to do this deep dive into like, why didn't you do this? You know, it's just, so I think kids are linking shame with sports. Hmm. So my, my son, Baylor, he loves Legos. So this is a metaphor. He builds these sets of Legos, and I have a daughter, Nora, who's two. If he leaves it unattended, she'll just knock him down. So I teach these kids about self-talk, about self-image, about how to focus on the process, not the outcome. And all the parents would talk about is the outcome. And they would tear down all the stuff that I helped them build. So parents, a few questions for you, because probably there's more parents listening to this than, than young athletes, is whose goal is it? Is it your kid's goal or is it your goal? Question number two is, how long does it take your kid to be a kid after that game is over? We don't want the, our kids to associate worth to how awesome they do in this game. This game does not define them. Is your, is your importance more on how, way they, how well they play as an athlete or your relationship with your child? And you think back, like, what shapes us as human beings? That time when we're children and, and kids. So um, there's a saying that um, I read that, you know, the best thing to say to your kids, there was a bunch of athletes um, that were asked, like, how'd you get to the college level? What did your parents say to help you get to that level? Um, the guy that did this research, his name is, is, is like Bruce Brown. Yeah, the guy's name is Bruce Brown. Um, and the six words that they said is the parents said that helped their kids get to college uh, sports on scholarship is, I love to watch you play. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's why I say grandparents are the best fans. Grandparents are the best fans because they're not doing a saber metric analysis on their launch angle and uh, bat plane. They're just like, that was awesome. But then I hear that, that the argument, well, the kids aren't motivated and they're not putting the work. It was like, well, that's their choice. I mean, if they want to be great, they're going to put in the work. You can't make them do it. 
but find them something, whether it's music or the arts or chess or debate, something, but give them opportunities to find something. In your mind, what is the purpose of sports? You could not design. If you put a bunch of scientists together, Shane, and said, let's create, let's simulate the best life teacher we can, sports is the best life teacher there is. Why is that? Because there's failure. There's teamwork. You have to listen to a leader or a coach. You may have success. Uh, it takes uh, long hours, a lot of work. You learn how to, to process information, um, to deal with other people. Do you see much of a difference between working with the athletes and with the businesses? Um, I teach the exact same concepts. If I'm working with Zillow, Nike, um, uh, all these companies I've worked with, I literally teach the same concepts to these business people as I do if you're playing for uh, high school or mm -hmm. there's like college teams I work with. Yeah, this is my thought. If, if Olympic athletes, if they're spending all this money on hiring specialists to teach them the mental game. Again, you can train your body, you can train your skill, you can train your mind. There are strength trainers. That's completely normal. That's complete. Every college program has five people on staff, four people on staff. And then also there are position coaches. Uh -huh. There's a coach that coaches quarterbacks. There's a coach that coaches hitters. There's a coach that coaches goalies. Like there's a position coach. That's skill. So we train our body, our skill. Mm -hmm. We can train our mind. And these, these major programs are doing this. These, yes. These so, programs that are winning like, let me titles. Let me give you some examples. Okay. Pro baseball, in the most recent agreement with the players and the owners, the, the players requested that there is a mental skills coach on every major league team. The app Headspace signed a deal in April with MLS Soccer and Team USA Soccer. Every professional soccer player and every soccer player for Team USA has an individualized mental skills program for themselves hmm. for the nba the director the commissioner his name is um adam silver adam silver he tweeted or there's an article uh this summer every single nba team is going to have at least two mental skills specialists of some kind wow. on the roster so it's starting to become more normal and people are starting to see it um just having the like dialogue about you know stress is a normal thing if you look at the research in the usa 75% of office visits to see a doctor is related from stress. Five out of six of the top deaths in the U.S. are linked to stress. But why aren't we doing something? We're yeah. always reactive. We're not being proactive. So, like, when I go back, I think of the trajectory of sports, you know, since, like, the mm -hmm. 80s. Yeah. I think of the Pistons. The Bad you know, Boys? Yeah. You Rodman? Got, you got the Pistons, and then you got the Bulls, mm -hmm. and you got Phil Jackson. Mm-hmm. And then Phil Jackson's relationship, you know, Steve Kerr and Michael Jordan mm -hmm. into the Lakers and Kobe. Like, I feel like that's a shift. Because when you look at Larry Bird playing in the 80s and the 70s, like, he was, he, was, he was playing hard. And there was a mental toughness to those players uh, that I feel like we don't see necessarily today. Today we're seeing more of these kind of poet warriors, whereas back then we saw more physicality. And I see that in culture, too. The culture of America is shifting. Do you see that at all? Well, can I just ask you a question? Sure. If I say the name George Mumford, you know who that is? No. Phil Jackson brought George Mumford on staff with the Bulls, and they won all those championships. He was the Bulls' mindset coach. Michael Jordan said, George Mumford changed my life. Phil Jackson went to the Lakers. If you ask, rest in peace, Mr. Kobe Bryant, the GOAT, in my opinion, 
he says George Mumford was so vital to that the mindset that he had. They, they taught how to visualize, how to use breath, how to use self-talk, how to use mindfulness. So I'd argue that a key component that no one talks about is they had a guy, Phil Jackson, all of his rings, George Mumford was around for eight of them. Wow. Do you think the Pistons had a mindset coach? That, no, that was old school. But, but Phil recognized that there's a certain mental hurdle that we have to get over. You know, so I look at, you know, how do you measure toughness mentally? It's adversity, challenge, change, and success. How do you respond to those four? Adversity, challenge, change, and success. If you look at physically as an athlete, I can, the body can physically only bench press so much weight. I can only jump so high. Like the body literally has limits. But watch this. The mind is limitless. There is no limits mentally. It's so untapped. And the old stigma, um, I'm going to throw out a name. The name is Chad Bowling. You heard of that name? It sounds familiar. Chad Bowling is the director of mental conditioning for the New York Yankees. In 2005, um, they hired him, and there was an article um, in the major papers in New York that says, don't laugh, the Yankees hired a motivational mental coach. In the title of that headline, don't laugh, because they're saying guys are making X amount of million dollars, they need like a mental coach. Like, and there is a, a player um, on the roster that says, you know, if you need a mental coach, that means you're weak, something wrong with you. So we're seeing that this stigma is changing. If these leaders of these big organizations, of these, these are billion dollar companies. And it's kind of like, if you only invest in the hardware, but not the software, it doesn't matter. You can only train so much. So where's the biggest growth potential? It's not physical, it's, it's mental. And you have your, your assets are your employees. Yes. You know, rather than turning over employees, you know, invest in the asset you already have. And, and then Gallup did research in the U.S. for an 8.5-hour workday. USA workers are only productive for, for four hours. If they're going through emotional stress, only productive for 1.5 hours. Wow. So there's like uh, Gallup also like t- 2012. Because of, you know, a lack of production, a la- lack of engagement, because people aren't productive because of stress, they're, they're, these companies nationwide are losing $450 billion dollars. Wow. So you're you're gonna invest. I think about a, a sports team. You're gonna invest in that high tech weight machine companies. You're gonna invest in this copy machine or this new, but you're not investing in, in your, your 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 people's mindsets. Mm-hmm. And my other thing that blows my mind is, well, you think that what happens to your employees at home doesn't affect them at work, it doesn't affect them at work, doesn't impact them at home. So if we can invest person over performer, if we can invest and give them these mental, emotional life skills that they can self-awareness, uh, be more present, how to deal with stress, anxiety, um, you know, uh, something as simple as just self-talk, like just knowing the basics of, of how the brain thinks and how it operates, just that awareness, it's going to be huge. What about a foosball table, though? Doesn't a foosball table help? <laughs> it might. Yeah. Find some outlets. So the word, the word is kind of self-care. I think self-care, you know, if I'm doing a workshop, and I might do it with you, Shane, so I want you to rank Shane the top things in your life, one through five. If you were to put like my keys, biggest things in my life, one through five, I could have force rank them. You probably put God first. Probably yeah. put your family second. Yeah. Career, friends third. 
Yeah. What? How? Where else would you rank? Those would be up there. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody puts themselves one or two. Oh. Okay. So how can you be good to somebody else if you're not taking care of yourself? It's like that lifeguard mentality. Well, it's kind of like it's it's cliche, but you know, you're on an airplane and there's turbulence and the oxygen masks come down. They always say put it on yourself first before you help somebody else. Mm-hmm. So if you're not prioritizing in your weekly schedule, sleep, like exercise, learning, prayer, mindfulness, like carving out time for you, my goal is to, to give you the tools to be the best version of you. My, my life mission is to transform lives. I'm a kid of the 80s. I used to love the cartoon Transformers. Mm-hmm. I think of being like, like Optimus Prime. Like these machines had their core parts but they would transform in their image of greatness, whether it was like a, a semi-truck or an airplane or an, an ambulance. You already have it inside of you. It's already there. So with some coaching, some skills, some motivation, you can transform and be anything you want to be. I feel like there might someday be a religion around Transformers if, the, if there isn't already. <laughs> I was obsessed with Transformers. <laughs> so uh, that was my, my favorite cartoon. But I, that's why I picked the word transform lives. Because I think you already have it. Like, it's already inside. And that's what the best coaches do, the best leaders. They see something in someone. Just like Coach Price said, you failed, but I love you. And you're our guy. And let's go. I got your back. This is the conclusion to part one of my conversation with Colin Henderson. Part two will explore some of the concepts Colin shares with businesses and athletic programs as a mind coach. Make sure to subscribe, check out the other episodes, and leave a review. This is Shane Simonson, signing off. Until next time. Mm -hmm.